0: Hi there. Thank you all so much for stopping by Dharma Punks, New York. And this is Josh, and I'm convening with you from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is quite adjacent to downtown Manhattan. And uh, there's an in-person gathering, and you are all very, very welcome to attend on November 6th at Center Yoga. Now, before the gathering, there's a yoga class that is offered by a wonderful yoga teacher, Casper, and that's from 12 to one thirty. And our gathering is from two to five, which will include time to connect with others, a Dharma talk, time for questions, somatic practices with Kathy, if you'd like to sign up, the, which would be helpful, all the info is on the Dharma Punks with an X NYC page. so Dharma Punks NYC. So the total cost, if you want to go from noon to five, I believe, is $25. Well, or if you just want to go to the Dharma Punks, I think it's $20. That's for the usage of the space. So again, that'll be on Sunday, November 6th, from 2 to 5 p.m. And uh, every morning at 8, Kathy does the half-hour morning meditation. It's called Daily Pause, and the info is also on the website. If you'd like to support my work, I'm a Buddhist pastor, and everything I offer from the teaching to the counseling is entirely offered only by donation. So the PayPal button is on the website or the podcast site on Podbean. There's also a Venmo, Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And there's also a Patreon. And that info is also on the website. So thanks for your support. It's what allows me to do what I do and I hope it's of value to you. We're going to be talking about keeping up appearances, people-pleasing, all that kind of stuff. We'll see if this makes sense. And I'm just going to start out by quoting from the early Buddhist text called the Siglavada. I'm not actually going to quote it verbatim. I'm just going to refer to it as the sutta where the Buddha lists how to practice a spiritual life if you're not going to be a renunciate, if you're going to be someone who has a house and has responsibilities and is busy. And it's quite interesting that he really doesn't in this teaching go into meditating. He talks about being very skillful in choosing the people that we hang out with. We should be wary of those that demand blind allegiance, those who either indulge in or encourage flattery, those who indulge in intoxication, risky behavior, those who would have us do things that we regret later. And he then extols, especially in the... Nita suttas, the importance of finding people that will encourage us to be honest, uh, to disclose our painful experiences, those who won't abandon or look down, those who don't ask us to do things that would jeopardize our core moral compass. And, of course, it's one would like to think of oneself as Someone that is upstanding and would not yield to peer pressure and engage in endeavors that are disagreeable, that we will look back on and regret or feel a degree of shame. And yet, despite our firm beliefs that we have a rock-solid sense of self that is impervious to the pressures of others, people in countless clinical studies from the Stanford experiment to the shock experiment uh, show that in the right settings with the right peer pressure, people will do things that can even verge on the abhorrent. One of the most fascinating insights into human behavior was called impression management. And it was first noted by a very important social psychologist named Irving Goffman. I believe it was in the late 1950s, it might have been in the early 1960s, but it was called um, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. It's a fascinating book. It basically, it's not a, a smooth read. Basically, one of the core points of the book is that in social situations, almost all people will invariably strive to control the impressions that others form of ourselves. In other words, we'll default to performing. And Goffman says we perform like actors on a stage, presenting a character. The thing is the character we're presenting is our ideal version of ourselves. We choose words, our demeanors, our comportment, our behaviors, the stories we tell to present a version of ourselves that will be received positively by others, that will leave a positive impression. So whether it's to be likable or thoughtful or decisive or strong or funny, we want to present experiences. We want to present our our sense of emotions, our, our beliefs. Uh, in a way that will create these desired impressions in other people. Impression management is deeply ingrained, and it's almost the a large part of it is even an unconscious process. This it's a very strong impulse to guide other people's perceptions of ourselves. It employs omissions, suppressing impulses and experiences we think other people won't like about us. It can involve all kinds of endeavors ranging from the benign to the actual uh, deeply unskillful, even abhorrent practices. So in the benign form, when we engage in impression management, it might be simply saying fine when people ask how we're doing when, in fact, we're not fine. Um, that's a very habitually ingrained routine. But each time we do it, we are engaging in impression management. We're simply trying to create a version of ourselves that's different than our internal experience. We're leaving out our struggles and our challenges when colleagues or friends check in. Very often people will engage in impression management in their online behaviors, Uh, will post images perhaps that misrepresent our lives to others. It seems that everyone, according to their, their Instagram feed, it seems lives their life entirely on the beach or traveling. I've never seen anyone posting an image on a Tuesday morning where they haven't had their coffee or on a a Wednesday mid-afternoon when they are kind of questioning their lives. It's only the kind of uh, admirable, uh, glamorous, aspirational images that we present And then, of course, there's social mimicry, where we might uh, be willing to adopt some of the same tastes, clothing, some of the kind of do or go to events that we really don't care of simply to connect with others. And of course, these are very benign behaviors that really don't reach the level of uh, deep concern. Although I will say that posting bifurcated images that misrepresent our life is not really an emotionally healthy thing to do because in some level we're aware that we're misrepresenting our life, but that's just me. Um, I just don't post selfies of me at the gym or, or you know, my dinner. Um, but uh, then there's impression management that's a little bit uh, more self-destructive boasting, self-aggrandizing accomplishments and capabilities, flattery, praising others to develop and sustain relationships can erode our sense of having core values and our core sense of self, a sense of uh, uh, we begin over time to lose a sense of uh, who am I. And of course, um, we don't really know if we're constantly engaging in flattery or people-pleasing or boasting behaviors, if people really like us for something more endemic to our personality, or if it's just these kind of um, uh, impression management behaviors that are getting us uh, friends. And then there's the really uh, kind of dreadful behaviors of impression management, which where we yield to peer pressure and engage in morally transgressive acts to win approval, doing things we wouldn't enact on our own. And for instance, opinion conformity, where we unquestionably espouse very harmful toxic views simply to elicit approval and uh, admission to groups that we admire. I'm actually kind of convinced that the toxicity of the white nationalist behavior that occurred on January 6th during the Capitol riots was not because there are this hordes of just terrible people. There are hordes of desperate people who want to connect with others, and the people they connected with – Um, were build bonds in that case around xenophobic, racist, or misogynist beliefs. And such views were so endemic to the group um, uh, fabric that over time, when confronted about these beliefs, people become very defensive, because they think if they drop these toxic beliefs, they'll lose their friends, they'll lose their family, they won't be, they'll they'll lose their church, and so on and so forth. So peer pressure and opinion conformity can lead to all kinds of toxic male, especially male behavior, where men who on their o- own would never uh strike random strangers or engage in uh sexual violence will under the pressure of others yield and do things that um create a lifetime of shame for themselves and can create trauma for another human being and then of course there's activities like ghosting disappearing rather than ending relationships or working through conflict with others people seem to find it easier just to disappear on others. Uh, and it causes so much harm, not only to the people that get ghosted, but to those who disappear. It trains them to believe that they can't walk through a challenging or difficult conversation, that the only way to uh, manage difficult interactions is to flee or avoid others, and that makes life smaller and smaller and smaller. And then, of course, there's the reliance on lying and dishonesty and excuses and to evade negative judgment. Impression management explains our maniacal, at times, obsession with our reputation and why it causes such distress to learn that other people are talking about us to others. The distress stems from the concern, not only about the damage to this reputation, but also due to the lack of control we have over what is said about us. It's the not being able to influence other people's impression of us that can feel kind of devastating. So, uh as we can see that i'm i've just hinted at some of the problems I'm, i'll talk maybe a little bit more with impression management and people pleasing and why it can lead us to such egregious outcomes but um it's first worth answering the question well if people pleasing impression management uh is so it can be so harmful why do we engage in it And that's clearly because uh, our core drive at birth is to connect with others for safety and support. From as infants, we learn to do whatever it takes to get positive attention from caregivers. And we will strive to do whatever is rewarded with attention, no matter what. And then... By the time we enter kindergarten or first grade or second grade, um, children become desperate to gain admission to peer groups. And that leads to an obsession with owning the same toys. And it's why children can be so distressed to find out that all their friends have uh, some kind of... uh, doll or something that they don't have and will demand it because they're terrified that if they don't, they'll be ostracized. There are key regions, neural regions that are responsible for group uh, adhesion, group cooperation. One vital region of the brain is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that monitors our connections And it creates, it literally highlights uh, emotional and physical pain when we feel excluded or judged. And then conversely, the brain's primary reward center, which is the ventral striatum, forwardly projects um, and leads to the excitation of dopamine channels, which are rewarding. So we feel really good when we're accepted by others, when we gain... Uh, group admission, when we feel a part of something. If you ever want to read an entirely wonderful book on the subject, uh, a, a clinical neuropsychologist, Matthew Lieberman, I believe at USC or UCLA, I can't remember which one, wrote a book called Social. And the book is filled with wonderful examples of how many neural networks there are in the brain there's neural networks uh, we can see from fMRI scans in the medial prefrontal cortex that keep track of our reputation. There are networks that, that that are there to try to figure out what other people are thinking about us. There's neural networks for guilt. And there's even in the dwarf lateral regions to promote self-control so that we can not be shunned or excluded by others. So, the frontal lobes themselves are inhibitory and constantly monitoring. the th- The reason why our brains are so big and complex is to manage and maintain our uh, admission and involvement with uh, in social, the social life. So beyond caring about. Social bond uh, and doing about anything to secure them, our brains are also deeply concerned with gossip. Um, one of the great psychologists of our time, Robin Dunbar, Robin-spoiled R-O-B-Y-N, who wrote some wonderful books on evolutionary psychology, won many, many awards. Uh, notes that language in human beings probably started as a way to gossip about tribal members. It was a way that we would keep track of those who were performing and those who weren't. And it's invariably language and gossip were invariably tied to the possibility of ostracization. And if we were ostracized, we would die. So we have baked into us this fear of social rejection, this concern with gossip, in the work of Anderson, Siegel, I don't remember the others. There was a recent wonderful clinical paper called The Visual Impact of Gossip. And they showed that key regions of the brain fixate on those who gossip and talk about us. Um, And the more defamatory these the gossip the more we pay attention and remember the faces so um and there's another one i read uh gossip and ostracization in groups show how deeply embedded gossip concern is just literally interwoven with building societies and groups so we are in brains that are terrified of rejection, terrified of ostracization, reward us for connecting and bonding in groups that will do just about anything to care about our reputation and will do just about anything to flatter, to leave positive impressions about ourselves. Of course, all of this comes at the expense of what's called emotion regulation the more we are likely to only disclose the positives only talk about or present to others the what we could think are the likable qualities of ourselves the positive or what seems like the really uh things that will leave a positive impression it comes at the expense of disclosing our internal states not just the things we're proud of, but also the times we struggle, the feelings of loneliness, grief, anger, disappointment, boredom. And when these affects or feelings or these internal states aren't disclosed and seen, they don't just go away. They actually atrophy or become, actually, they don't atrophy. What they do is they Become uh, an even more toxic version of themselves. Unregulated latent affects can cause everything from uh, heart disease, impaired immune dysfunction, digestive disorders. Um, unregulated loneliness can lead to desperate acts to try to connect with people, even, you know, engaging in. Uh, uh, the sex industry or whatever to get the feeling of connection. Anger is vented at the innocent. All of these behaviors come about because they haven't been in any way acknowledged to others. And uh, in this desperate attempt to people please, or to present a really winning part of ourselves, we We shun to what Jung called a shadow self, these experiences that are authentic, these needs that might not be pretty, but are there. And it's only through disclosure that they can be regulated. If we, this is why, by the way, all spiritual paths affirm accountability to others as a vital foundation of spiritual growth it's in sharing our secrets and the acts that we regret that we lighten and we feel because when we share them, if we share them with the right people, they demystify, they normalize, we can feel less ashamed of our um, experiences. It puts them into a frame that's more helpful. Whenever we don't, Uh, I've had people who come to me and in great trepidation talk about things that they're ashamed of that happened 20 years ago that were really quite innocuous. But because they haven't disclosed these events or these experiences or these feelings over time, they create a very toxic sense of a broken self or something, a part of ourself that's unlovable. Um, it our sense of self over time plummets, we develop core shame, and uh yeah, we believe that there's something in us that's unlovable, unacceptable, and uh a pervasive feelings of not knowing ourselves of feeling empty can arise, or on the other side, social anxiety because the more we... Conceal the less we disclose over time, the more we become frightened that other people, if they really look at us, will become, will see or somehow intuit that part of ourselves that we feel ashamed of. And it's quite interesting because I work in counseling. Many people, the first time I meet them, will either be very nervous or anxious. I hope it's not because of my tattoos. I think it's because so many of us carry the burden of uh, feelings of shame for things or feelings that we feel are abnormal, that are in fact entirely normal. But we've just, as a price to pay for building friendships or becoming popular in certain settings and milieus we haven't ever talked about. So in short, people-pleasing impression management comes at the expense of really being seen by others, which is the only way we can regulate emotions and limit the sense of shame and the sense that there's something completely unlovable or unacceptable about our sense of self. So rebalancing uh, on the first hand obviously demands disclosure, which requires connecting with what the Buddha called Kalyanamita. I'm not going to talk too much about that because every talk, (laughs) it seems I talk about the essential nature of connecting with people. The Buddha said, connect with people who don't look down on you when you've done something that you're embarrassed about, who listen, who don't, like in other spiritual paths that associate confession with punishment. In Buddhism, there's none of that. The Buddha talked about in the Rahula Sutta, to his son, he said, if you do something that you're ashamed of, or if you have a feeling or thought you're ashamed of, just find someone wise and disclose it and just acknowledge it. There's no, he never mentions punishment, doing, reciting prayers. He doesn't mention asking for even forgiveness. He just talks about acknowledging these Experience these feelings. So are these uh, these experiences that we now regret. So there's it's essential to find people with whom we can be honest and disclose. Um, it also demands to rebalance away from people pleasing, having a core internal moral compass, what the Buddha called sila, that we refuse to cross no matter what. When we know that we have a moral compass uh, that we will not abandon, even at the expense of popularity and acceptance, for instance, a moral compass that in Buddhism are the five precepts, we refrain from any violence, we refrain from taking what isn't offered, we refrain from harmful speech, intoxication, or causing harm in sexual encounters, Um, When we know we have a moral compass that we won't um, uh, transgress at any cost, not only does it create a sense of boundaries with others, but it also creates a foundation from which we engage with others, and we're less likely to simply please at all costs when we have this core moral foundation. We're far more likely to have a sense of self-esteem, a sense of self-worth, and that makes us less likely to, to feel we need to do whatever it takes. We have a sense of worthiness that means that we will not only always reach for friendships, that we will come offering what we have, but not abandon what is true to us. And this additionally requires reflecting and connecting with our core values, because we also want to engage with people from a place that there are values and traits and things that we deeply believe in. And so if we have these core values that we hold up, then... Also, there'll be a sense of knowing what kind of uh, people-pleasing or group behaviors are not possible for us. We connect with core values through reflection. It's a very important part of the Buddhist practice. It's a very important part of contemporary therapeutic modalities like ACT therapy is founded around reflecting and also buddhist therapies are all re- require reflecting on what are my core foundations my core beliefs it could be empathy honesty kindness creativity developing tranquility traveling new experiences uh you know developing new skills you name it you know there's limitless core values that we can cherish the more you know what yours are, the more you have them uh, as something that you can pinpoint and and know. As we go into meet new people, as we emerge from the pandemic and try to regain some form of a social life, we won't be pushed and pulled about into shapes that are disagreeable. So. That was tonight's talk. I have no idea if it made any sense, but I hope it did. And now we're going to do a recollection and meditation geared towards pinpointing our core values with the idea that if we really know what these core values are, we'll have far more of a ground to stand on with others, one that will not either lead to abandonment nor towards engaging in people-pleasing behaviors that ultimately cause a, a sense of shame or a sense of emptiness. So, thanks for listening, and let's find a posture that we can practice in, which hopefully means you'll turn away from the uh, camera or screen so that you don't see my visage. In fact, if you want, find in your room a window or a plant or a painting or a uh, <coughs> something that you can rest your gaze on for a moment.
1: Just allow your eyes to settle. And so when we
0: close our eyes, hopefully there'll be
1: this inclination for the eyes to be less twitchy, We want to bring awareness into our body.
0: And to do that, you want to find a landing place, know where you're going to land your awareness. I very often start with the eyes. I find that if I bring my attention to my eyes and just note if they're jumpy or relaxed, And if they're jumpy, I'll focus on just breathing into them and settling them. If they're relaxed, I'll then move my awareness down to my jaw, make sure it's not clenched, that it's relaxed, that my mouth is in a relaxed position.
1: Checking the cranial muscles in the face to make sure they're relaxed. Then moving our awareness down to the shoulders. And if your shoulders are up,
0: just roll them back like up and back and then drop them. And when we roll the shoulders back, it opens up the chest. And when we drop them away from the ears, it sends a message back up through the vagal nerve
1: saying that we're okay, there's no threats present. and then we want to make sure that the breath coming into
0: the chest is very full and complete but that the and that the exhalation is very long we don't want to push out the exhalation we just want to release it the longer the exhalations the more
1: relaxed over time the more we focus on the inhalations and make
0: them rapid, the more alert we'll be. So you can
1: steer or influence the, the what you're feeling, how anxious or energetic or tired by the breath, And then bringing the awareness down to the
0: belly. And you just want to make sure that the belly is expanding smoothly with the inhalation and then releasing with the exhalation and that this expansion and release is very smooth and that at no point does the belly...
1: Return to a very tight, contracted state. And then we're gonna go down to the buttocks and
0: sit bones and thighs and just make sure that all of those
1: contact sensations are really relaxed. And then drifting down to the contact your feet are making with the ground or the floor or anywhere they're rested. So we've traveled through the body. Hopefully you've become acquainted with the
0: sensations that indicate whether areas of your body are tense or relaxed. And you can think of these sensations metaphorically, like stars in a
1: night sky, a constellation of sensations associated with the body. So there's the
0: solar system of the legs, solar system of the arms and the hands, the galaxy of the abdomen, the chest, and then another set of stars for the face.
1: And just relax and take in this constellation of
0: sensations like you might lie down and
1: observe a constellation of stars above. We don't need to do anything, go anywhere, achieve anything. No one expects anything of us at this moment. All we need to, we don't need
0: to do anything, but all that's asked at this time is simply to relax and stay with
1: the immediate sensations of being alive in this moment. And we can also keep the mind expansive, not only by just taking in
0: the shifting sensations of the body, but also the sounds arising and passing in the environment around
1: us. The most distant sound might be cars or... associated with nature, wind, birds cicadas, and the most, the nearest, the most proximal sound from the room around you. So we'll just sit quietly for a little while,
0: and the goal is just to stay present. Noting sensations arising and passing, noting sounds arising and passing, adding no judgment onto either. And if a thought arises, see if you can allow it to be there while maintaining also awareness of the breath or sounds or some sensation in your body. It's like having an anchor so that the boat doesn't slip away with the current.
1: And if you do slip away, your boat loses its anchor and starts
0: floating here and there, just drop another anchor, lower your awareness into your body, find a sensation in your body that feels really good maybe the palms of your hands or your shoulders, and just stay with what is pleasant. Just keep returning
1: again and again. That's what so much of the practice really boils down to. And so for the sila, reflection, developing core values, what attributes
0: in myself, as I look back on my life,
1: do I admire the most? What qualities has it have been my growth, my resilience, my openness, my kindness, my creativity? And if you can't find an attribute that you can pinpoint, just bring to mind someone that you really admire and ask, what about this person do I really admire? And if you have any sense of that positive attributes,
0: that positive attribute or attributes, just set an intention,
1: a promise to yourself that anyone or group that comes at the expense of this core value, that you'll
0: set boundaries with, that you'll set aside the time to pursue and develop this attribute, this
1: value, this tendency, that you'll cherish it. After all, it's that which brings a positive sense of self, That's to be cherished. And then ask ourselves,
0: conversely, what attributes in ourself or others
1: do we find harmful, disappointing, infuriating? Often this comes to mind a little quicker. We all have something that we find, frankly, dispiriting. And so it's making a commitment to ourselves not to
0: engage with others in such a way that We have to
1: engage in these attributes we find disheartening. Knowing what we admire and knowing what we find disagreeable. What activities and experiences really inspire us. For some, it could be
0: going to see art or hearing music or traveling or trying
1: new cuisines or doing service with others or connecting with family or what what experiences do you find the most enlivening And again, setting an intention to prioritize or at least balance our life in such a way that we pursue these activities and perhaps find others who value the same. bring to mind activities we've done that leave us feeling empty, activities that don't feel good, that in some way create a sense of embarrassment or just... in some way, hinder our sense of self-esteem. What experiences, for example, would you not want others to know readily about? See if you can really feel that sense of disagreeableness in the body, the distaste as it were, and set an intention to know that along with our moral compass, these are activities that Will no longer engage in, even at times, if it feels or means being left out of certain connections. Of course, we're not talking about benign examples like not preferring to eat a certain cuisine. We want to be flexible,
0: but we also don't want to engage in activities that really create
1: a sense of dismay And finally, bring to mind an image that
0: encapsulates you living your life in a way that
1: feels most authentic, most true. Just visualize yourself doing something that brings a sense of true joy, growth, pride, worthiness, And as you hold this image in mind, are there others that you could imagine? Supporting. Encouraging. these true growth activities. So for the purposes of today's reflection,
0: again, knowing what attributes in others and ourself we admire the
1: most, what qualities in others we find disappointing, disagreeable, what activities do we
0: really find inspiring in what activities or experiences
1: feel empty, hollow. And having an image associated with our best sense of self. And if there's any
0: people in our life that always come at the expense of
1: living in accordance with our core values. The strategy is not necessarily to cut
0: individuals out, but to learn to set boundaries, to
1: align ourselves with those beliefs and practices that really create a lasting positive sense of who we are. So when you're ready, open your eyes and um, thank you for your practice.